Hey, Rockheads, it's time again for NDC, an incredible developer conference held annually in Oslo, Norway. Richard and I will both be there, of course, but check out this all-star lineup. Troy Hunt, Rob Eisenberg, Scott Allen, Oren Eni, Michelle Bustamante, Damian Edwards, Brock Allen, Dominic Beyer, and many more. Register now at ndc-oslo.com. NDC, we'll see you there. .NET Rocks, episode 1285, with guest John Bruner. Recorded Thursday, March 31st, 2016. Hey, guess what? It's .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And we're on the show floor at Build. And it's, it's almost speechless, isn't it? I, I just don't know what to say. I do not have words. So you've already heard you know, our show with Miguel de Acaza right. and Nat Friedman. That was fun, wasn't it? I mean, we were literally sitting in the keynote waiting for them to make the announcement so we could publish the show. The hardest part of it was not being able to tell our friends because nobody, nobody here knew. Yeah. Um, and also all the great open source stuff. So Xamarin's free for everybody. Yep. And it's open source. Mm-hmm. And Unity joins the .NET Foundation. That's open source, Unity 3D. Yep. They got great stuff with Microsoft Graph. Um, just a lot of stuff. So if you haven't listened to those shows, I encourage you to do so. But the reason we're here and the reason we have a fishbowl is not to actually do podcasts, although John Bruner's here. We're going to talk to him. But... You notice there aren't a whole lot of shows that we're doing from Bill. Yeah, I mean, the one we did with Nat and Miguel and the one we did with uh, Jeremy Fake, we did before yeah. uh, Build, so we sort of got to know in advance. So, Richard, you need to take credit for this idea, the reason that we're here in this booth right now. Tell well, everybody what that is. So, the, I mean, the, the I love the idea of a podcasting space. We've done this a ton, and this is just another fishbowl for us, right? Yeah, like, we've yeah. done a lot of these, but... Uh, you know, there's no reason for us to record at Build per se. We have access to those Microsoft people. There's other things we could do. Right. And so I, in a conversation with Microsoft months ago, I said, you know, the biggest problem with Build is it sells out in 20 minutes. Yeah. Right? And so the only people who go to Build are Microsoft super fans. Like, they hover over their keyboards yeah. to try and register. It's a panic. And anybody that would, you know, not be on that crowd would just never come to this show. Right. So what if we brought other podcasters to the show? And people that podcast about iOS and Android yeah. and JavaScript and stuff that we don't usually talk about. Yeah, or at least we, we always talk it from a .NET context because, right. hey, it's .NET rocks, right? Yeah. And I've, this has been really fun because, so we've gotten a bunch of podcasters together. A, they've been to an event they've never seen before. Right. And they have a very different take on it. Yeah. Uh, they've also had a chance to interview some Microsoft folks. So you the iFreaks podcast, uh, Today on iOS, Rob Walsh, who's an old school podcaster yeah. like us. Man. Yeah, that yeah. guy's been involved with Libsyn like nine years of making shows. We ought to have him on. It would be a hoot. Totally with you. Yeah. JavaScript, Jabber, those right. guys have been recording up a storm. In fact, we should have them all on. We'll do something. We'll <laughs> do something. I'm not going to argue with you on that either. Yeah. Uh, it's just been a ton of fun. They've got a chance to see some new things. And, you know, it's like we made some new friends. And, yes. you know, the funny part is, of course, podcasters are all not that different from each other. No. Right? It's We've true. all been through the pain. I'm trying to make a weekly show no matter what. We spent a lot of time at dinner last night sort of comparing notes, you know, with our adjacent <laughs> communities. And here's the funniest observation that I heard from that. And, John, you don't have to be quiet because we're all in the same room. That's no problem. <laughs> I'll introduce you in a minute. But um, what was really great is that one of the guys was jealous of our relationship with Microsoft because they give us so much information ahead of time. Mm-hmm. And Apple gives them nothing. <laughs> it's Apple. Nothing. <laughs> and it, it, we sort of sat back. He's like, well, of course they give you nothing because yeah, they're Apple. It's like, wow, how would you do how yeah. would you do that show? Yeah, that yeah. is hard. It's hard to be a journalist and cover Apple, but the page views are great. Yeah. <laughs> you do it. You put out a, an Apple-related rumor, and it blows up. Yeah, right. no kidding. Because there's no information coming There's right. no information. It's a yeah, void. People are starving. Out of Cupertino. Yeah. Anyway, it's been an adventure. I hope we get a chance to do it again. Right. So that's our opening comment story. Now let's get to Better Know a Framework. Awesome. <laughs> All right, brother, what do you got? Well, I have this really cool tool that I found. It's trending right now. And uh, if you go to 1285, because that's a show number, dot pwop, P-W-O-P, dot me, M-E, you will see it. And it's called, and of course, this is another 
name that nobody knows how to pronounce. You never know how to pronounce these things when you see them for the first time. Oh, because these words don't exist in the language, right? <laughs> uh, pageress or Pagares, P-A-G-E-R-E-S. Or is it Pagerez? Pagerez is probably right because it has to do with taking snapshots of your web application as it's being tested. Interesting. So from the website, it says, capture screenshots of websites in various resolutions. A good way to make sure your websites are responsive. It's speedy and generates 100 screenshots from 10 different websites in just over a minute and can also be used to render SVG images. Interesting. How cool is that? That's a good little test tool. Yeah. And uh, you can use NPM to install it. And, uh, you know, the, there's the good documentation there. It looks pretty cool. And again, you know, this is something that I haven't run, but uh, it's on GitHub and it's trending, as I said, and I thought, uh, I thought I'd let everybody know about it. Page res. Cool. Nice find. Pagaries. Did Pagaries. I really say that out loud? <laughs> Pagaries, I think Pagaries. you did. I like PageRes. Yeah, PageRes is probably what it is. It's a good name for a tool because uh, eventually when they launch off of GitHub and get their own URL, they can use the, the Spanish TLD and PageR.es. Oh, yes. Yeah, it can be in Spain. Yep. Neat. That's clever. That's the, yeah. I, that's very is that how you look thing. at names? It's like, what suffix could I put take yeah, it there? Yeah, exactly. What, uh. what could we use .ly on and right. make it? Yeah. yeah. That's good thought. Stuff is all going to feel pretty tired pretty soon, it's I think. It's funny how, how the naming system originally set forth for the internet has been totally abused. Dude, yeah. I registered gud.com in like 1995. Every three-letter domain name in the dot-com space is taken now. Yeah. Hmm. And, you know, it's, I'm never going to give it up. Right. <laughs> but yeah. I get a lot of offers for it. Yeah. What, what, are, what, are, what do people bid for it? Uh, I, yeah, ten to twenty thousand dollars. Okay. Okay. So it could be your retirement fund. Oh by boy! The time you yeah. Get, yeah. Off a domain name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> crazy. I, I tried to uh, to buy br.nr, which is my last name without uh, vowels in it, and indeed it's available. Um, so a two-letter domain name nice. .nr. Uh, the problem is that it's uh, administered by the government of Nereu, which is a South Pacific island yeah. nation, and uh, they wanted. $500 a year for it. For Reg. For, for Reg, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I just, I, I thought about how I might have this domain name for 60 more years and I wasn't going to pay $30,000 for the <laughs> for a vanity uh, domain name. And and last time I looked, Nauru is one of those islands they're talking about evacuating because it's going to go underwater. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this domain, this TLD may be the only thing they have left in <laughs> a few years. Yeah, I don't think it's going to, it's either going to go from 500 to zero <laughs> or it's going to go from 500 to 50,000. Right, right, right. Because that's the only revenue source they have. Yeah. They may have updated this. I looked at it a few years ago, but uh, at the time you needed to send a PayPal payment to them and wait five days for it to be activated. Wow. So send them a fax or something. So, <laughs> so Richard, yeah, who's talking to us? Grabbed a comment off a of show 1213, the one we did back in November last year, 2015, right. uh, on business transformation with Jason Zander. And that was a broad-reaching conversation. Lots of Azure, lots of IoT, just sort of all over that space. And pretty sure we're going to end up in a similar conversation today, to be honest. And this particular comment comes from Richard Rumica, uh, a.k.a. The Codputer. Great name. The Codputer. <laughs> Not his first mug, either. But uh, out of Calgary. Hey, Richard, good to talk to you again. Great little comment here. It says, business transformation is an understatement when you start talking about cloud resources. Organizations simply think they are protected by large capital investments that they have in infrastructure. However, with the elasticity of cloud computing resources, a small team can take a huge chunk of business before an enterprise even realizes that they have a competitor in the market. I think we are going to see large organizations totally surprised over the next few years as they realize they cannot complete economically with a new startup and their scale-out application architecture. I can't believe these businesses are usually more worried about shadow IT than competing with businesses that can eat their lunch. My question that I hoped would have been touched on in the discussion is the difference for, between the two actor models that I think Microsoft has in the market, Orleans and the Azure service fabric. They say that service fabric is around 10 years, but then why has Orleans been announced? And perhaps on a smaller scale, what about ACA.net? Right. I would love a show on the actor model and the technologies in the market that support that model. 
Is that good enough for a series? .NET Rocks, to my knowledge, has never done a series where you line up several shows on a specific technology. Actually, I, we did. We did exactly <laughs> that. We have gone and we've done shows, a couple of shows on ACA.NET, done a couple yep. of shows on Orleans. And one on Service Fabric, at least one. At least one and more coming. I would not put Service Fabric in the category no. of an actor model no, at all, although we, you can implement an actor model architecture it's, with Service Fabric. I agree. It's at a much higher level. Uh, service Fabric is all about moving sliders and pushing buttons and making magic happen. Right. And and you don't get into the nitty gritty of... Well, uh, but it's also why it's been around for 10 years, because it's been the backbone of Azure. They just haven't made it visible. Right. Now it's a product that not only you can use in Azure, but as they announced it at, at Build, they've already tested it on AWS in a set of VMs. Yeah, it's It'll great. run anywhere you want, including on-prem. So certainly an implementation, but it's not there. Orleans is a different cat because yeah. Orleans really came out of MSR, yep. the, the research group, for the Halo project. Yep. And they just made the code open source. If you want to use it, it's fine. It's Azure-centric. What's interesting is that Scott Hanselman showed in the keynote that we saw today, yeah. um, service fabric, where each one of the ships in the universe you know, is a, is a service. Right. So like an actor model is where you have essentially in Orleans every class you know, it, but what's the difference really between a class and a service, except how it's accessed? Geez, that sounds like uh, Yuval Lowy from Lowy. way back when. Every class is service, and I think we're going to come back around to that with him I very think soon. You're right. Yeah, and and of course, Aka.net original claim to fame is, hey, it comes from the Java world, so it, a fairly mature model, right. and it was it's just code, so you can run it everywhere you want. So, you know, back when we were just comparing Orleans to Akka, that was fine. Here's an Azure-centric version. Here's a, where do you want to run this version? Right. And the service fabric, I mean, it's a different thing. Although, again, like we see, saw, you could have looked at all those ships as actors as well. Sure, right? they It's a pretty been. good model. So they do overlap. I hope we've addressed it well enough. I do know for sure we need to do more shows on service fabric. It's emerging. There's a lot more to be said in that space. But uh, and, we and we should unbundle that whole question that he had about the differences between those things. Yep. in a little more detail. I think it's absolutely applicable. And hey, Rich, happy to send you another .NET Rocks mug. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of our social media because we publish every show to Google Plus and Facebook. Comment there. We read it on the show. We'll send you a mug. And definitely follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. Send us a tweet. We shine our shoes with him. All right, now it's time to uh, introduce our guest, John Bruner. He runs O'Reilly Media's hardware division. Great job, by the way. Thank you. Yeah, I'm sure that must be a lot of fun. Where he oversees publications and conferences related to electronics, manufacturing, industrial design, and anything else at the intersection between physical and digital. John writes and speaks regularly about the new hardware movement, the broad range of technological and organizational changes that are democratizing physical innovation. Welcome there to the show. Well, thanks very much. Yeah, pleasure to be here. I'm excited to have you too. I mean, you're obviously a Silicon Valley guy with a Silicon Valley job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, uh, I'm not originally a Silicon Valley guy. I'm a. Uh, I'm a New Yorker. Oh and, wow! And was at Forbes magazine for a long time before moving over to O'Reilly. Right. Um, but I dabble in in programming myself as well as uh, writing, and so it's... Do you have in a background heaven. in hardware? No, my uh, background is much more in software. So hardware has been um, something that we at O'Reilly have gotten into as we've seen our community moving in this direction. Sure. Right. Um, it, from both the perspective of Make, Make Magazine, yep. Maker Fair, yep. um, Maker which Revolution. are, yeah, both, we're both part of O'Reilly Media and were spun out a couple of years ago. Uh, so a lot of our friends have, have helped build that up. And then at the same time, we've seen um, a lot of signs that, that in the big business side of things, there's this convergence where companies that have traditionally dealt in software are getting into hardware. They're right. seeing that it gives them control, it helps them build pipelines that uh, that can suck up data from the physical environment or ways to connect with users that uh, that you can't you know apply in 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 pure software so and the opposite is true isn't it that yeah software developers have been getting into hardware hardware developers have been getting into software like exactly that's what you mean by the great convergence yeah perhaps. totally and and right so on the other side you know companies that have always built physical things are, uh, see software 
connected to their things is a critical way to add value. So GE has been on this big push, for instance. I'm stunned at the fact that, I mean, for so long, the hardware that went into household devices and those sorts of things was custom embedded gear that a handful of people knew how to program. It was all about keeping the cost down. Yeah. And today, the, 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 the compute we're seeing coming, the general purpose compute, the stuff that will run .NET and run yeah. Java and so forth, that hardware's cheaper than that embedded stuff. Oh yeah, it's incredible, yeah. I mean, forget about, it's not even that you don't have to get an ASIC made you know, right. to, to run a connected light switch or whatever. You don't even have to program uh, in, in C or, or assembly. You yeah, can yeah. program in JavaScript if yeah. you want and run uh, Node.js on your Raspberry Pi. And mm -hmm. it's inefficient. You know, yeah, and sure. um, and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter at all. This it's cheap. It's reliable. Yeah. It's, and it's fast enough. Computing get, power is so inexpensive, and, and so it gets efficient. a lot of people into it, doesn't That's it? Right. I mean, these little devices. I saw somebody showed me a seven-dollar computer today. Uh huh. Do you know the seven-dollar computer? Yeah, I do. yeah, <laughs> I do. yeah. And I can't remember the name of the company. Maybe you do. I, I, I'm trying uh, to, I have a box yeah, I'm with on my it. desk right now. It was now. actually up in a tab yesterday, yeah, and yeah, I yeah. had to shut my computer down. But anyway, uh, yeah, seven bucks, and it runs .NET, or C Sharp, yeah. or yeah, some yeah, yeah. micro version of it. And right, right. Yeah. I think what it is, you know, anyone who writes software kind of scripts informally, right? You have yeah, some sure. little problem, and you can fix it with software, with a few lines of code. Yeah, um, throwaway projects. Yeah, throwaway projects, yeah. easy easy stuff. You know, it's it's going to be inefficient code, but it's going to be quick and dirty. And, yep. and I bet if you think of all the lines of code out there in the world, the, the majority of them, the vast majority of they're them. They're thrown away. Yeah, they're th yeah, it's throwaway code. It's, you know, someone has a file and every Thursday they have to move it from here to here. Yeah. And so they set up a little script in it and it moves it, it over. Yep. Um, hardware development has never made that kind of uh, thing possible until now. And, and now I think what we're seeing is an era of scripting in hardware. You know, you have some, some light and, it, and you wish it would go on under certain circumstances. Now you don't have to shake your fist at it anymore and you don't have to buy an expensive, you know, system to make it work. Right. If you know what you're doing, you just, you, you throw together some, some components, you get them from SparkFun or DigiKey yeah. uh, and you script them with JavaScript or Python or .NET yeah. and, uh, and, and you're off. And that sort of thing, you know, is never going to be sold and scaled you sure. know, and, and find its way into Best Buy with that kind of programming in it. But, uh, but it's something that your average consumer can probably get into as a hobby. Totally, and, totally. And, you know, they have to buy a couple of Raspberry Pis and replace them every once in a while. That's not yeah. a big deal. Yeah, you see yeah. the magic smoke coming out of a Raspberry Pi, and it's... Uh, Time for another one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> 35 bucks. Another 35 bucks. The, the what smell is, of electronic death. The Raspberry Pi yeah. 1 now is down to, like, 9 bucks, right? Yeah. It's the Raspberry yeah. Pi 3 that's $35. Yeah, so the Raspberry Pi Zero is down to down to five dollars. You know, it was the wow. nine dollar computer that came out last fall, and yeah. everyone was just blown away. And now, now we're already down to a five dollar computer. Yeah. Wow, wow, wow. But it's, yeah. I mean, it's not going to be every consumer, but it's the natural tinkerer, the one that wants to make things better. The barrier to entry is insanely low. The stuff's right. cheap. Yeah. And the coding languages are not obscure. You know, there's lots mm -hmm. of online resources. You can find a YouTube video that could help you. Yeah. And you can get something done. Yeah. It's, it's going to be part of the stack for yeah. everyone. You know, 20 years ago, uh, if you wanted to build a reasonably sophisticated website, you had to find a database engineer and a front-end engineer right. and a back-end engineer. And these were separate you know, separate disciplines. Now, a full-stack web engineer is a thing and, uh, and can do a lot of great work. Mm -hmm. um, a full-stack engineer doesn't quite yet exist in hardware, but it's, it's coming, I think. There are a few people that we, that we know. Uh, there's a guy named Bunny Wong who uh, lives in Singapore and just does incredible hardware work, and he understands the full stack. He can do the, the low-level electronics design. He can program embedded systems. He can oversee manufacturing. Oh, He's extraordinary. Yeah, it's a yeah. superpower, but it's that that kind of full stack approach is going to become available to more and more people over the next few years. Just some, well, and part of that's going to be the stack has gotten simpler and mm -hmm. and maybe not as efficient, but you didn't need to be right. And uh, and people are getting a little more comfortable with all this stuff yeah. too. But I think people are the slow moving part of this yeah. equation. They are, they are, and and you know uh, probably you have a lot of engineers who listen to your podcast, and maybe you'll get some angry mail about who the hell is this guy saying that you don't have to write efficient code on yes. embedded systems anymore? You know, of course you, you do, but uh, uh, there, there tends to be some resistance to this idea that, you know, you can write 
program embedded systems with JavaScript or whatever. We're talking about two different things, though. We're talking about one thing on one hand, getting Raspberry Pi and, and controlling lights in your home, yeah. which is a totally different thing from making a professional IoT device that's right. going to have, you know, to be in rough conditions and yeah. out in the field and outside in heat and yeah. and all of that. Those that's a totally different conversation. Right. Right. Well, and and just as you know programming the back end of Google search is yeah. a different kind yes. of software engineering from you know programming right. a startup uh, web page for a social network or sure. something. So, but you know what the logical comparison is here? I bet we've all done this, is trying to bring a PC into our home as an appliance for our family, yeah. or specifically our wives, to use. Yeah. Has always been a failure. And children. Right? Hmm. I mean, my, the Microsoft Media Center, I love it, looks great, not reliable enough for normal humans to use. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Eventually replaced it with a Roku. Yeah. Does the same job, costs $100. Yeah. And it's not that it never fails, is that when it does fail, you turn it off, turn it on, you're back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. PCs yeah. are just crankier than that. Well, yeah. there's, PCs have been the jack-of-all-trade device, right? Yeah. I mean, they do everything. And when you try to do everything on your PC and one thing fails, you, yeah. you tend to have a problem. So, so well, you know, this... This is very, I'm, I'm looking at a piece of hardware right here on the table that illustrates this point. And that is multitaskers aren't all that great sometimes. Yeah. And for this reason, we don't record our shows on the PCs that we use every day. Right. We have a separate audio recorder that when we go out, we, we use it because we know how to turn it on, turn it off. We know it's going to work every time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, because Windows decided to update a driver somewhere, it's, it doesn't care. Mm -hmm. No. Mm -hmm. You know, whereas if you use your PC and you were just listening to, you know, something yeah. at a, your volumes are all changing and everything. You know, what's funny is you, you're pointing to the H6N, the digital recorder we're using. Right beside yeah. is your iPhone. Right. Like, talk about another general purpose computer. And we have the same relationship with it we have with the PC. Yes. We're annoyed at it constantly. Right. right. It does so many things. Most most of them mediocrely. Yeah. yeah. Just bloated. Good enough. Right. Yeah. Where, I mean, we love... The H6N so good at digital recording, you forget about it. Yeah. It just works. That well, single-purpose device. But here's yeah. the thing, too. You know, this, the, all the things that the, the modern smartphone does, you wouldn't want to have a separate device for each of them. No, you'd be covered in devices. Right, exactly. We're professional podcasters. We invested in this, this you know, unitasker. Mm -hmm. And uh, it works because of just, you know, that's, that's the only thing that we need to carry around. Right, with, yeah. And we care about it working perfectly every time. Right. And it's right. had a busy week. <laughs> yes, it has. But, uh, yeah, you think of all the things that just need a keyboard and a screen and, and yeah. Internet access. You're not going to divide that up into a million devices. Right, right. Although they're trying to do that to us, John. They are, they are. <laughs> they are. Yeah. If you go to, uh, to the electronics markets in Shenzhen in China, right across the, the border uh, from Hong, Hong Kong. Kong. I've been there. Richard's been yeah. there, yeah. Oh, yeah. God. It's amazing. Isn't it extraordinary? Just, just walking, I mean, it looks like a shopping mall. And in a lot of ways it is. It's just that it's floor three, LEDs. Right, right, right. Just LEDs. <laughs> floor 50 stores selling different kinds of LEDs. That's insane. Yep. From individual pieces to bags of 10,000. How can anybody ever buy anything? It's incredible. One, one of them has a storefront that sells nothing but uh, knobs yeah. for, for dials and things. But just the knobs, not, the, not even the electronics behind them, just the decorative knob. And the way I've understood that the way that functions is these are actually the safety valve for the Foxcons, for all the factories of the next block over that are making the iPads and everybody else's electronics products. And they run out of knobs they, and they go shopping. And they, instead of waiting to order, right, this literally, these shopping malls are the just-in-time delivery service. Right. They're not as cost-effective as the bulk orders for a normal factory order, but when you need to finish an order and you are a thousand knobs short, there's a knob shop. Exactly. The knob <laughs> shop. And it's an incredible environment for uh, prototyping electronics. We, we see uh, uh, a lot of startups, you know, send, send their people over to China and, yep. and live there for six weeks while they prototype something. So in, in the, you see this on Kickstarter all the time, right? They, yeah. Every Kickstarter electronic product I've ever backed, at some point, some months afterwards, it's like, mm -hmm. so we're all in China right now. Yep. We're all living in, a, in an Airbnb for $35 a night. Uh, yeah. and, uh, and we have a maid and a cook. Yep, yep, yep. Exactly. <laughs> and we're, but we're trying to get our boards made. Right, right, right. So, you know, for, for electrical engineers, the, 
the rise of DigiKey, which right. will ship you something overnight in small quantities, uh, was a godsend. And you can imagine how much faster the feedback loops are, how much faster the development oh, yeah. cycles are if you can just go down the street, touch everything, uh, and, and buy a handful of things and experiment with them. Yeah. So uh, it used to be that this was a step that that you know big companies went through in developing yes. electronics they'd have their their um, initial engineering process here in the US and then they do design for manufacturing in China through a local firm or something right. that sets it up and you know and I remember going to Hewlett Packard in the Silicon Valley in the 80s mm -hmm. and there were whole floors of labs that were essentially that's how you did this yeah. they had bits enough of every kind of part scattered around that space to do that kind of prototyping yeah 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 it's incredible. It's uh, you know, so so used to be that uh, that just the DFM happens over there, but now it's become so accessible to yeah. anyone that you can you can send your three person startup over, buy the components, solder them together right there, decide it doesn't work, buy more components, do it again, and iterate and and do a bunch of iterations in a day, right, and then. Once you get one that works, now you start that conversation with the factory, mm -hmm. and it's all, and now it's about manufacturing efficiency and, and better design approaches. And right. this this design will be more tolerant to the variations of these components. Yeah, 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 you don't yeah. have to test so close. Yeah. Like, it's interesting to see mm -hmm. how much a prototype evolves as soon as you're exposed to the real factory world. Right. How they're going to make we're going to make you a hundred thousand of these things, and they are not all going to be the same, but yeah. they all still need to work. It's hard. I mean, if you're used to the abstracted beautiful world of software yeah, where you say Utopia. a equals two and a equal a is nothing but two and you don't have to worry about it <laughs> it's in hardware it doesn't it. exist yeah, yeah 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 in hardware it's well the calculation shows that you know we should have uh, 12 volts coming out of this but for some reason yeah <laughs> it's 11 it's, volts yeah, it's <laughs> gonna be between 11.2 and 12.7 yeah. or you know you realize how many different sub-disciplines are are at work when you manufacture just a you know a 30 dollar bluetooth accessory for your sure. phone or something in right. Injection molding. You know, you yeah, yeah, as, yeah. as an amateur, you try to you try to do some injection molding. You come up with a design. You send it off to the factory, and the quote comes back ten times higher than than yeah. what you expected. Surprise! Right. Surprise! And it turns out that it's because you know you didn't know something about the tolerance of the molds, and so right. uh, you know you have to talk to the person at the factory, and they give you some good advice, and this you're able to bring it down. This is the trap that software people fall in all the time. Digital oh, yeah. is perfect. And yeah. reality never is. And right. so you and you presume perfect tolerances on everything. Mm -hmm. You keep getting hit for it, whether it's electronic, whether yeah. it's plastic, all right. of those things need more tolerance than yeah. what you're used world. to in the digital world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, Richard. Bingo. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is I now? It must be that happy time again. You know it. It's time for me to cancel my Amazon order for a pallet of knobs. <laughs> <laughs> I never should have. All I had to do was go to the store. <laughs> Actually, it's time to give away a Telerik DevCraft collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, do you know Swift, Objective-C, and Java? Can you use them in tools like Xcode and Android Studio? If so, awesome. For everyone else, there's NativeScript, a cross-platform framework for building native iOS and Android apps using the skills you already have. JavaScript or TypeScript, CSS, and a XAML-like XML markup. Build the mobile apps you've always wanted to build. Use the NativeScript CLI for free, or use NativeScript inside Visual Studio with a Telerik platform subscription, which enables you to build iOS apps without the glowing Apple. Get started for free at nativescript.org. All right, buddy, who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is Matthias Weiser. Oh, congratulations, Matthias. Golf clap for you, sir. Golf clap for you, sir. Congratulations, Matthias. You just won the Telerik DevCraft collection. That's a big pile of awesome from our friends at Telerik. And if you don't know what we just did here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the fan club. But you got to sign up to win. And we also like to ask our guests, John, and I know this might be out of the blue from, for you, but uh, if you had $5,000 to spend right now on technology, what would you buy? $5,000 is almost enough, so I'm cheating a little bit here. All but right. It's almost enough to buy a Tormach PCNC 440, which is a CNC personal mill. CNC mill. Yeah. Yeah. 
CNC mill. So it's a fabricator. That's right. Some, yeah. Subtractive manufacturing. Yes. You, you uh, make a model in, in your favorite CAD software, and you hit a button, and it exports a G-code that runs the mill. You put a piece of aluminum or steel or wood or plastic in there, and it, uh, it carves that which you have designed. So it takes away everything that isn't make whatever it is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and these things are incredible. It's really, you know, we always talk about the 3D printing stuff, the additive model. Yeah. yeah. But the, the subtractive model, which A, has worked for several thousand years, right? Yeah. Ever since we started whittling. Uh, and, but the, the automated, these, I mean, the old CNC mills, I mean, A, they were 150 grand. Yeah. They were epic. Yeah, yeah They yeah. take your arm off, but they, they could do amazing work. They've come down so much in price now. You see regular like cabinet maker shops now use CNC mills yeah. to do a lot of trim work and things like that because it's fast, it's precise, you can mm. use any wood. And, yeah. you know, it's not a big deal to go, oh, you want that in walnut? Okay, I'll right. get some walnut stuck, carve it out, right? But I hadn't seen this particular one. I, I looked it up as soon as you said it because I, I know Tormach. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This is a personal size device. That's right. It's, it's uh, smaller than the 1100, which is their main uh, product. And uh, it actually has a faster spindle speed than the 1100, now so it'll go a little faster. Now, you said steel, wood, aluminum. You can use any of those materials? You can. I've you never, can? I've never put wood in a Tormach machine. I think some people do. Uh, so you just have to have the right blade or whatever? Yeah, or the, the right end mill, the, the right, right cutting mill. tool. Um, and you have to set up the, the speeds on it properly. That, that takes a lot of expertise. Yeah, the cutting, the cutting rate for aluminum would be enough to just set wood on fire. Right, right, right. <laughs> if you try Got to it. do that. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, the, the stuff has, has just come along incredibly. And, and um, you can think of the Tormach or, or any CNC machine or 3D printer. It's a way to translate between digital and physical. Sure. You have some digital data, and it, it renders it into physical form. It's a very powerful idea. And wow. Base unit is 7,000 retail. Uh, fully loaded with stand for 10. So. Huh. All right. You have to win twice. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. I, I don't know about you, but I'd buy it with everything. Oh, <laughs> yeah. No, you have to. Especially, yeah, you want the, you want the enclosure for it because it has flood coolant. So you're yeah. spraying wow. this awful, like, water-soluble uh, oil yeah. on the thing you're cutting the whole time. It is horrible, actually. It is, yeah. I remember seeing a full-scale Tormach uh, at, a, at a machine shop. And doing aluminum work, yeah. And he's saying, and you, like, you really can't see what's going on, right? When it really gets ripping, it's just pouring this stuff that looks like milk yeah. at the cutting all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. But different cutting rates, different precision levels, depending on what you're doing. So you do this fast cut to sort of get the initial yeah. shape. But when it was done, the aluminum looked polished. Oh yeah, you know, wow. like it was just so refined. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that was again hugely expensive. Right. Well, and you can still get hugely expensive yeah, ones. I they mean, will always take your money. Maury Seiki and, and Haas make amazing machine tools that cost o over $100,000, you know, sometimes over $500,000 for the big multi-axis uh, mills. But the, the sophistication of those is just extraordinary. Yeah. I don't know if I told you this, Richard, but there's a new makerspace in my town. I didn't know. New London, Connecticut. And uh, they got funding from private investors and local businesses and governments. Hmm. And... Uh, it's going to be a co-op. You basically pay like 30 bucks a month, and then you can just put your name on a list, and when time comes up, you get to use all, nice. the, all the gear. And it, there's a wood shop, and there's uh, 3D printers, and uh, laser cutters, and all sorts yeah. of really cool stuff. Again, I, I think they have a full kitchen, too, I'm sure, I think. Again, it's lowering the barriers to entry for this stuff. You know, you don't have to, uh, you don't have to be an expert who's already invested tens of thousands of dollars to acquire this equipment. Right. right. You can walk in, and a lot of it is remarkably accessible. So, is this the new business? Like, right. To just sort of get involved in making hardware, get to prototype all the stuff yourself, and 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 work through it. I mean, at some point, you always end up in China. Yeah. Uh, you. Sorry, is that a question? Do all roads lead to China? Just didn't quite hear. <laughs> Most roads lead to China. Um, Large-scale electronics production happens in China, period. Mm -hmm. uh, Small-scale electronics production often happens in the U.S. Mm -hmm. A lot of, a lot of uh, companies in the Bay Area do contract manufacturing, do machining, stuff like that. It, uh, you know, the setup costs are are lower in the U.S. The engineering costs, the time you spend going back and forth is right. way lower. And so right. if you're not making that many it, it's units... A, it's the per unit cost that's going to make the difference. From that's right, yeah. I mean, it, there's a whole conversation here about the state of China these days, right? Yeah. The, the well, capital fl fl fleeing and so forth. It's like, 
how screwed up are we if they're not able to manufacture anymore? Yeah. But I, I, yeah. I don't know. Uh, there's question. a company that I use in uh, New Hampshire who's done, who has uh, manufacturing here and then is also setting up a manufacturing plant in China, sort uh -huh. of a hybrid model. And so based on the run or the, you know, however many yeah. or, or whatever, the, whatever the best place is, they yeah. can choose. Most of the very most price-sensitive manufacturing has already moved to China now. And now deciding yeah. whether to manufacture something in China or in the U.S. is a more nuanced yeah. process where you, you know, look carefully at what kind of expertise is available where. You still want to do aerospace stuff in, in the U.S. because sure. that industry is really here. There's, um, also the, there's also some legal side of this about, you know, what's... Yeah. I'm reading this just recently, but there's government restrictions on certain kinds of technologies that has to be done in the U.S., yeah, especially yeah, yeah. in aerospace. Right, aerospace, uh, you know, defense, defense related stuff things ha has right. happened in the U.S. Um, but you know, you're you're right. Uh, wages are going up very fast in China, mm -hmm. um, which is making it a little less cost effective. They're they're automating a lot of factories. Foxconn is yeah. spending a fortune to automate a lot of its. Well, that's stuff. an interesting question. Like, once it's a machine that will actually do all the fabrication, who cares where it is? Well, exactly. Uh, but it, you know, if you can get the machines built and the factories built for cheaper in China than yeah, you can. Yeah, I guess that's the question. Is, it, is that going to be saving in exchange for the travel distance costs and the time right. zone costs and all the Shipping other is non-trivial for this stuff No, from not China. a small yeah. part of it. Richard, that. you and I have talked about this before, how you know people say the manufacturing jobs are leaving the United States and, uh, and, and in fact, they have been shrinking, but productivity is up. We are still, in the U.S., a huge manufacturer. Right. Yeah. And it's just that the, the automation has taken over. Yeah, so that's right. So while there's less jobs, more stuff is being made in America. Yeah, yeah and the people who do work in manufacturing are people who have expertise in things like CNC machining and stuff right. like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We used to make a bunch of craftsmen hours and hours and hours to yeah. cut with hand tools out, out of wood yeah, yeah. or even hand cut with a lathe out of steel. Yeah. Now it's done by a machine by an operator who's much more a computer guy, really, yeah. Than a, than a machine guy. Because those machines do have limitations. I think it's one of the more complicated parts of understanding those machines. Is right. They only cut a certain radius. You know, they can't cut from the inside out. Right, right, right. Yeah, setting up the tool paths. And um, if you go, if you send your uh, design out to a machine shop or a service bureau to be machined, that is a, a big part of the upfront process is their engineer looks at your design and figures out how to set up the tool paths for their right. machines. There are a couple of startups that are working on automating that. There's mm -hmm. one here in San Francisco called Plethora that's, uh, that's doing this. It's interesting to, mm. to take a look at it, but the idea is that you know, the, the old way for doing this is that you, you know, email a CAD file to someone at a machine shop right. and then they take two days to get back to you and they kind of like quote it out um, with heuristics. Plethora is automating that, so you upload a, a, a CAD file and uh, and it quotes it immediately and also can, you know, run the machines and, and advise on setup. I don't think they've completely finished automating all of that yet, but down the line they're hoping to. It's pretty interesting. Are there scenarios where it makes more sense to do additive manufacturing as a production product versus the, the, the old steel yeah, approach? Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's a really interesting um, area. And, and we've encountered this. We did get a chance to tour the uh, the SpaceX facility. And apparently yeah. there's, there's parts that have to be made with these laser sinters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, additive manufacturing has a few really cool characteristics. Um, one is that as Carl Bass, who's the CEO of Autodesk, has pointed out, mm -hmm. complexity is free in additive manufacturing. Interesting. Yeah, it is costly right. in subtractive manufacturing because you have to, you know, the, the, the mill has to go in and... and every hole's a cut. Yeah. And every hole, every hole's a cut in a CNC machine and every hole is stuff you didn't have to do yeah. in additive. And, That's and right. you know, when we, when we went to SpaceX and I'm reminded that of that bulkhead. that bulkhead that they had done with additive manufacturing that was made out of steel yeah. or might, might have been an alloy, but, but it, it, was a, yeah. it was a metal. Yeah. But it looked like a solid chunk of metal yeah. until you held it up to the light and you realized it's porous yeah, and it's, it's like work. two inches thick yeah. and so it's a mesh yeah. it's a two inch thick mesh you could never have made yeah, yeah, that yeah. any yeah. other way yeah the complexity of stuff that you can make additively is extraordinary you can also make shapes that you would never be able to machine right yeah. um, and stuff can come out of a 3D printer assembled essentially you yeah. can like you can print if you imagine a hinge right that has uh, one side with kind of teeth on it the other side with kind of teeth on it and a pin in the middle that yeah. holds them together Conventionally, you'd machine these or, or you know, 
build them separately and then uh, have someone put them together and put right. the pin in. In a 3D printer, you can print that assembled. It comes out as seeing a, a demonstration of that making device. a crescent wrench. So hmm. the main piece, the jaw that moves, and the worm gear yeah. all made simultaneously. So it came out of the printer, assembled. That's crazy. And in different wow. colors. The yeah, different yeah, pieces yeah. Were different. And I'm like... It's Star like, Trek. Yeah, it's Star <laughs> yeah, Trek. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there are a few times in my life where I cannot believe what I've seen. Yeah, yeah. That crescent wrench was one of them. Where yeah. you're like, yeah. that's got to be impossible. I mean, yeah. how... <laughs> Are we How? moving towards rec replicators? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Star Trek How do they keep the parts from being stuck together? Like, what did they do? Well, remember we were talking about tolerances yeah. earlier. That's the that's the thing. Or actually, a lot of 3D printers. Um, are able to build in support structures with a different kind of material right. that you can melt out right. later. So yeah. that could be part of it too. Um, it's certainly something I've seen a lot of sort of traditional plastic 3D printers is yeah. after it comes out of the printer, it ain't done. Right, 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 <laughs> you right. Gotta right. You gotta pull out your modeling skills and tear off those scaffolds without yeah, damaging yeah, yeah. it, a little yeah. bit of sanding in here. Yeah. That you have to clean it up. Those yeah. good looking models, that was somebody's labor to yeah. get it there. Well, wow. this is a not, not so interesting for your podcast listeners to hear, but I'm wearing 3D printed eyeglasses right now. Oh, right. And um, I didn't print them myself, they're printed by hipsters in Berlin, but they, uh, they're from a company called <laughs> Maikita. And, uh, would you call them artisanal? Yeah, yeah okay. I'd and call them artisanal, the people sure. that made them, do they have big, long beards? Uh, they do. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. You can go on their website and see a video of how it's done, but what they emphasize is that the finishing process is, is vastly more complex than the actual printing process. Do you mind if I take a look at it? Yeah, them? sure. I mean, I wear glasses, too. So, yeah. so this is from Berlin? On, yeah. Well, they're made in Berlin. They're made they in buy Berlin. them here. Uh, and, but, and what was and the company? Kita, M-Y-K-I-T-A. So, they look uh, like just great glasses. They're great. They're very light. They're flexible. Now, is it just the frames? Or the, just the, the frames. Yeah, yeah. No, the lenses are conventional. Um, but the, they go through a long bead finishing process, you know, through mm. like an abrasive tumbler, and they get dyed, and it's, it's very... Wow. Very complicated. Apparently, it took them a long time to figure out the finishing processes. Wow. So, th the other thing that makes additive manufacturing, 3D printing compelling, and where you see it used in production is where um, things have to be customized. So, because there's very little setup cost compared to machining. So, right. the, 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 perhaps the most successful large scale 3D printing operation is Invisalign, the maker of invisible braces. Oh, they're braces, right? Oh, yeah. right, yeah. So they, they're 3D printing. I don't think they're 3D printing the braces. I think they 3D print a mold and yes. then put plastic in the mold. Um, the other other places you see it used, I mean, you mentioned SpaceX. Other Aerospace, it's used quite commonly in things like ductwork in airplanes. Yeah. Mm. Because different airlines want to specify the layouts of, of their cabins individually. And so, you know, maybe a, maybe a duct needs to be slightly differently configured into 737s that are running off the line. Right. Huh. One that would be a non-starter in old-style manufacturing. Yeah, that's just right. Just complicated to manage. Oh man, making a, a new mold for yeah. for a one-off thing just doesn't never, make any never, sense. Never, never, yeah. done. But yeah, I've, I've read lots of pieces about Boeing talking about percentages of manufacturing and, and aircraft being additive manufactured. Right, right, right. Just because it's all digital anyway. We can mm -hmm. make those changes on the fly. It's specific to the vehicle. They've got. They keep the documents, so when that plane has a problem, you could get that part replaced. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the thing I think is the most fascinating on the three additive manufacturing side is I don't main an maintain an inventory of parts anymore. Right. I maintain an inventory of materials that can make those parts on demand. And an inventory of intellectual property that right. specifies those. So it's you, you seem to me like you, you're very future-minded. You like to think about what if and when if and what, what does the future lie in the next, you know, pick a year span. <laughs> what uh, what are some things that you do? You really foresee um, replicators in our lifetime, and by that I just mean things that can take a pattern and f take base chemicals, perhaps, or uh, and, and just you know put them all together. That's a great question. Um, I'm I'm kind of a pragmatic uh, moderate on that question. A lot of people who are really really smart do say that we'll have true replicators in our houses. And um, plenty of other people point to fundamental limitations in this technology. Yeah, laws of physics, like cloth is very hard to yeah, yeah, yeah. additively cloth, make. Cloth is hard to automate at all. Yeah. Uh, that's why it's still done you know, by hand in low-wage uh, countries. Um, 
you know, 3D printing, I, I think it will be ubiquitous for certain applications. I, I don't know that, uh, that we'll ever see an, a time when, you know, your doorknob breaks and so you 3D print up a new doorknob in your basement and that that's faster than going to Home Depot and buying a new doorknob. Right. But, it, I mean, if you need, if it's a fairly specific doorknob, I don't think you'll have the machine at home. Like, I really like this idea. And, obviously, we've Shops. just been talking around this, but this truth yeah. of you do your prototypes here in, in the U.S. and then you send those files to China for mass right. manufacturing. Right, right. The idea that I might have... Uh, you know, a, a, a plastic 3D printer at home and make up the prototype, yeah. but then send it to the equivalent of a quick copy down the road right, right. that has a laser, sin, you know, a half million dollar laser sinter right, machine, right, right. uses the same file, you know, please make this in aluminum with this yeah. finish. Yeah, yeah, and right, right, right. The variety of technologies is such that I think that's a more likely outcome yeah. uh, where you have service bureaus, and already there are service bureaus. Um, Proto Labs is, is an incredible... Um, company that'll 3D print something for you and send it to you mm. really, really fast fast turnaround. They have a giant facility in Minnesota. Yeah. It's just a huge warehouse full of 3D printers that are running constantly, and they'll 3D print in plastic or metal. They'll also do some machining. And What about food? Food. Food printing. Interesting. You've heard of this. I have, yeah. Yeah. A lot of people do uh, fondant Cookies, and sugar fondant. and stuff like that. Yeah. Right. Um, I think the... The really interesting thing that might happen to food is the the introduction of synthetic biology to the food production process. Mm. So there's a a an incubator here called uh, IndieBio that incubates startups that focus on synthetic biology. And some of the stuff that's coming out of it is like uh, uh, synthetic meat, you know, so test tube meat. That may take a little while to take off, just for sort of cultural reasons, but. One that looks like it could be successful is synthetic eggs, synthetic egg whites, because they're ubiquitous in processed food, and right. eggs are a big supply chain risk to, for instance, McDonald's. Um, there's a bird flu, egg production falls off, now right. they're paying 10 times for their egg McMuffins, what they used yeah. to pay. So they're dying for synthetic, um, you know, reliable manufacturing of, are, of eggs. Are they really dying? <laughs> are they? You know, the, 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 the other, chickens are dying. Yeah. The other way, one of, you know, when you talk about synthetic meat, like one of the problems they complain about is the texture and so forth. Yeah. Like, it's an interesting idea to start thinking about core uh, food items, right? Just this idea of the carbohydrate or the or the protein or any of those sorts of things in a very static form, in an amorphous form, and that the 3D printing is used to give it the texture. Mm -hmm. Right, you, I, I think about products like Soylent and Abernite and so forth. These liquid, complete nutrition drinks of yeah. folks are just punting on food. Just drink the shake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, could you take that material and through three D printing make it into something just a little more interesting than a shake, but still have that same sort and of simple nutritional bomb? And for that matter, would we still call it three D printing, or could we call it an automated cook? Yeah. Oh, it's interesting. Yeah. I I can see that. I like that that idea. The. Um, a few startups are working on automated cookers. They involve something like a 3D printer. Something is put through an extruder nozzle, you know, yeah. and, um, and then cooked on a hot plate that's controlled by a microcontroller. Sure. Um, the 3D printers and, and, and food is a really interesting combination. Yeah. Yeah. There's something similar that, that I came across that was an indie bio company, and we had them at our uh, solid conference last year, a startup called Pembient that makes synthetic rhino horn. So, you know, rhino horn oh, is yeah. uh, sought after in parts in of Orient. East Asia, um, and it's causing the decimation of, of rhino populations because right. of poaching. So they actually created a, a rhino horn that is genetically identical to real rhino horn, but it's made synthetically, and then they 3D printed it into the shape of a real rhino horn, and it, and it looks identical. And, and if you flood the market with that stuff so they just can't know the difference anymore, yeah. like, it, at the at worst, you'll destroy the market. Right, right. Which is really not a bad outcome yeah. at all. But more relevantly, like it'll just be easier. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It makes. I mean, in the end, there's really not a whole lot of difference between rhino horn and your own flipping fingernails. Yeah, arguably, exactly, your fingernails exactly. are better for you. Yeah, right. Probably cleaner. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, well, you you can't tell them that though. There, there's there's a long tradition in using that for yeah. medicinal purposes or whatever they use it yeah. for. Yeah, it's really interesting. So, John, what's next for you? What's in your inbox? What are you going to do tomorrow or the next week? So, at O'Reilly, uh, we're, we're 
about to come out with a, a long string of releases in hardware-oriented books and, and instructional videos. We're really excited about VR and sure. uh, coming up with a few products and sort of tutorials and things related to that. Um, there are a lot of VR headsets being released right around now. Yep. Yeah. There's one from HTC. Of course, there's the Oculus yep. uh, Rift headset that'll finally be available at, at, on a retail basis. Did you do the HoloLens experience here? I didn't do the HoloLens experience here, but I tried it in Redmond about a year ago. Nice. And has it changed a lot in the last year? No. Uh, not as far as I know. Okay. Yeah, apparently the Mars, this Mars demo one is different from the ones from last year. Okay. In some respects, but... Uh, I did do a Mars demo. Yeah. Uh, so it may have been, yeah, may have been but, the same. Uh, you know, we're not at production hardware yet, so yeah. I'm, I'm, I can't wait to see what it... When you think about what happened to Oculus between the SDKs and the production unit, oh, yeah. I hope there's that kind of revolution for yeah. the... For the I just I think, think they're so. taking on a way harder problem. Yeah. Oh, they are. AR is a much harder problem than yeah. VR. Um, well, this was something that we discussed on our podcast with a an investor named Rob Conibier, who is a big hardware investor at Shasta Ventures, underwrote Nest, and mm. a bunch of other interesting companies. And he's now really bullish on VR, making a few investments there. Yeah, good. And he was saying that you know VR is a much easier problem than AR because um, VR immerses you, and there can be lapses, and you'll not yeah. mind them. AR, right. the lapses become noticeable immediately. If there's sure. a pin on top of your head and you turn your your face and, and the pin doesn't, doesn't go stay exactly right there, then yeah. well, the, if you the use HoloLens, ruined. you know it has a field of view or size of view problem. And I think that's what they were worried about is yeah. better to restrict the field of view than to break the illusion. Right, yeah. right, right. Well, that's very cool. John, thanks for spending an hour with us. It's been great. Of course. It's been a pleasure. And come back again. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a